This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Converse brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. And Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Has Jordan. Allen shakes Gray gets two. Gilmore on oh, stop. Oh, brother. Lead Toledo artist. You get 21. 428 to go in the first quarter for the Cow Palace. Here's Barry. Paroxysm.com. I am Jason Mann, and uh, Rich can't be here today. He's got some. Uh, he's got busy elsewhere. So we uh, brought in a, a special guest to uh, co-host for today. Uh, welcome back to the show, Adam Cribbley. Adam, good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. No problem. And uh, we are going to talk about uh, an interesting topic, which we always talk about on the uh, Over and Back podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about players who only appeared on an all-NBA or ABA first team and then never were selected all-league again. And I think this is interesting, just kind of the idea of that, okay, you are a top-five player for one season and then, you know, never are again, or, you know, at least rated by um, the media of the time. And and I I just think it's sort of interesting because this is actually a fairly rare thing to happen. It's only happened 15 times in... um, in NBA ABA history, and, and eight of those eight of those times happened you know, during the um, the ABA year. So you know, kind of a, a years in which the league you know was uh, obviously the a greater amount of parity and a greater amount of um, talent dilution because of expansion because of all the ABA teams. Well, I thought it was interesting that there's such a spread. So I kind of anticipated the uh, you know the ABA NBA um, issue, but. The fact that, you know, the earliest was in the 40s and the most recent, obviously, is, uh, you know, Anthony Davis, as we'll talk about in a little bit in 2015. But I was amazed that there was such a spread that there was no really decade or era that wasn't represented. It was it was fairly consistent every couple of years that um, outside of that, you know, that uh, 
that high instance during the uh, the pre-merger years, but there's been pretty consistent every couple of years. Or a player seems to make the list. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, in more recent years, yes, that, that's that's definitely true. I mean, um, it was a little bit harder to do um, before the third all or all NBA team was added in, um, in 1989, I believe. Um, before then, there were just two all NBA teams, and you know, it's just. Um, you know, it's easier for a guy to be on a first team one year and then a third, you know, get a third team before he fades out or, or, or whatever. So, um, so it's a little bit, it's, it's rare in the, er, the earliest history of the league, but once we hit the late sixties and so, yeah, you're right. It is kind of a consistent every few years type thing. So, uh, so I guess we will, uh, we will, we will crack into it then. Sounds good. Uh, so we start in the uh, the BAA, the uh, one of the NBA two predecessors merging with the NBL, uh, just a, a, a couple years later. The um, nineteen forty eight BAA, uh, Howie Delmar. Um, he was uh, with the uh, Philadelphia Warriors. Only actually played three seasons. Um, the previous year, the uh, the Warriors had won the finals in forty eight. Um, when Delmar made the first team, he um, uh, they had lost in the finals. He was a uh, he was a guard, a point guard. Was first in the league in assists, um, eighth in the league in win shares, first in defensive win shares, which is not necessarily the the best metric ever. But we're kind of lacking uh, stats for uh, 1948, so that's the kind of the best we can give as far as uh, why he may have made this first team. But pretty much, you know, team success, uh, defense. And um, and his passing, I think, would be you know would be the primarily the reasons for uh, him being on this list. Yeah, it seems to be the only thing that that really stands out um, outside of, of course, the uh, you know the the uh, the idea that he had a, he had a strong team, um, and obviously you know Philadelphia, uh, the Warriors were one of the, the the stronger teams in the BAA. So I think he probably got some headlines for that. But outside of that, yeah, the, it, it's it's kind of hard to to tell why. Uh, why he made the first team and um yeah that's not, not he, his lot, was a new name yes not a whole lot written about him um no but uh yeah i mean it, his teammate uh, joel folks was also on the first team he's much more famous uh one of the uh pioneers of the jump shot and one of the uh, really one of the first great scorers in uh the nba I, 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 the first uh player to reach 60 points and um and it took you know almost a decade for that to be reached again the nba before the craziness of the wilt era um so yeah, he um, only played three seasons. Was 26 when he retired. Went to uh, coach the uh, University of Pennsylvania, and then later made it to uh, was a longtime Stanford coach, uh, whom he led the NCAA title in uh, 1942. So um, yeah, so uh, not a whole lot more on Howie Delmar, unfortunately, but uh, an interesting footnote in basketball history, nonetheless. Well, I mean, he was playing in an era too when there was better money in coaching than in playing. So I mean, it was probably an economic decision in 48. That he decided, you know, to, to hang hang up the sneakers to to make a little more money coaching Penn. Yeah, that's what I figured as well. So, um, you know, I I was wondering if there's a a, a bank called Penn if you work there as a teller. <laughs> anyway, um, bad jokes aside, um, so that was pretty bad. Thank you, I appreciate that. So we might, we might cut that out. You never know. Um, he uh, so moving on to nineteen sixty eight. Uh, in the ABA, uh, Charles Williams, who um, was nicknamed a Sweet Charlie. This was his first season of his uh, six in his ABA career. He was a point guard and shooting guard. Uh, this season, he averaged he was seventh in the league with 20.8 uh, points per game. 
And um, he was a teammate alongside with Connie, Harkin, Connie Hawkins, who led the uh, Pittsburgh Pipers to the ABA title. So um, what else is interesting about uh, Sweet Charlie? Well, Char- um, Sweet Charlie is actually mentioned quite a bit in uh, Terry Pluto's book, Loose Balls, that covers the uh, the history of the ABA. And in fact, he was one of the players interviewed for it. And so he has a lot of really interesting insights in it, mostly about other players that played in the league. But one thing I found really interesting was that so he had he kind of had this chemistry with uh, with Connie Hawkins and and Hawkins was famous for having these giant hands that were you know just huge, enormous hands. And so uh, Hawkins would get a rebound. And Williams would, uh, Sweet Charlie would go to, you know, kind of the three-point line area for an outlet pass, and and defenders were waiting on it, so they'd try to jump the pass, and and Hawkins would kind of, uh, the only thing I can equate it to is kind of in football, like a hook and go. So Hawkins would fake a short pass, and as soon as he would fake the short pass, um, Sweet Charlie would go deep and catch the touchdown pass the layup, and so he apparently did this all the time, and. Uh, apparently teams didn't catch on and there wasn't a lot of game film in the ABA, but, uh, no. but yeah, the, this combination of, you know, Hawkins to, to Charlie Williams, uh, was apparently like a really, a really, uh, tremendous, um, uh, tandem in the, in the first year of the, of the ABA when they won the titles, the Pipers. Yeah. Um, and, um, it didn't go quite as well in uh, 69 and then, um, Hawkins moved on to the NBA to, to play with the Suns. Um, yeah, the, the, the Pipers kind of had a crazy history cause they actually moved the next season to Minnesota. Then they moved back to Pittsburgh and then they changed their name for, from the Pipers to the Condors. Then he moved on to Memphis who, um, went from the pros to the Tams. So he was like, uh, you know, every team, every season he played, he seemed to either move cities or the team's change, the team's name would change. So, uh, one of those like uh, only in the ABA crazy instability type stories. Yeah, he only played for a couple different franchises, but he ended up playing, you know, in five cities for six teams or whatever. It's uh, yeah, it's it's, it's definitely reminiscent of those uh, those especially the early ABA days when teams were were moving around a lot. And um, in Memphis, he actually played for Charles Finney, the the Oakland uh, A's uh, owner. Charles was, Finley, I believe. Finley, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, who who you know famously. Uh, um, it is kind of the, 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 the bad guy or, or almost the evil boss for the, the 1970s Oakland athletics. And then he, you know, owns a, a pro ABA team on the side. And, um, and so yeah, sweet Charlie got to play for, for Finley in the, uh, in the ABA go. for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, um, the, another thing that Hawkins and Williams had in common is that they both had been blackballed uh, from professional basketball because of a failure to report uh, bribes. It lasted for a long time for Hawkins. For Williams, it only uh, lasted a year or two before he, um, you know, went to the ABA um, as well. The ABA didn't care so much about uh, that, uh, thankfully. <laughs> and, and both, you know, there was the the charges for that were thin, particularly for Hawkins. So. Um, but it was one of those things where they were so paranoid about it that anybody who had any sort of even vague association with gambling was uh, was taken out. And um, looking kind of at advanced stats, um, probably he didn't necessarily have the best case for being on the um, All-NBA team. But, of course, they didn't really know that back then. But he was uh, 49th in true shooting percentage, um, even though he was 7th in the league in scoring. And he was uh, 52nd in win shares per uh, 48. So not really uh, – necessarily where you would you would have the caliber of a um you know all nba first team guy and you know relatively uh short career but you know managed to uh you know have one really memorable season 
I think part of that too is like with like with Howie Dalmar when you're when you're on a great team and you're one of the better several players in a, in a relatively small league you're you're going to be more likely to to pick up that acclaim and so I mean he was he was a top two or three player on on the championship winning team so I'm sure that that went a long way too to to help solidify the the, the spot on the uh, the first team oh yeah absolutely yeah I mean you you can totally understand the thinking behind it um and you know nothing wrong with it it's just you know if you looked a little bit deeper at you know kind of what we can uh, you know, pull from it now, just based on on that. Yeah, probably not. Um, you know, the, the best choice for that. But hey, you know, um, we're we're not taking away from him. We would never. Uh, one, 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 no, never. No, not sweet Charlie. Um, one, one interesting fact. So I, I love basketball reference, and I love diving in to just see the crazy stats you can find or whatever. And and I found one for for Charles Williams or Charlie Williams. Um, in 1970-71, he played in 88 games. He was traded that season in the middle of the year, and um, an, uh, an imbalanced schedule meant that he played you know, six extra games than everybody else. Uh, this is actually the second most of all time in ABA or NBA history, these 88 games. And, and first, of course, you know, as befitting the ABA, is, a, is another Charles Williams who went by Chuck Williams and played in the ABA. So uh, this, you know, the, the imbalance schedule, I think, played some tricks. But, yeah, an 88-game season. So he didn't, win, he didn't get first team that year, but he definitely earned his paycheck. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, Walt Bellamy, I think he's tied with as well. Uh, it was a little right. bit easier to do that in the ABA because the ABA had, four, had 84 games instead of 82. But Oh, that's right, um, that's right. But, yeah, it's still, that's, that's a lot of games, so – um yeah um so i guess we can we'll move on to uh the next season 1969 in the nba and two teammates actually uh, accomplished this feat uh wes unseld in his rookie season and earl monroe in his uh, second season for the uh baltimore bullets they they improved quite a bit from 36 to 57 wins they were the record was first in the NBA, but they were they were a little bit not quite as good in SRS. They were fourth in the league, still very near the top, and they ended up underwhelming a little bit in the playoffs, sweep being swept in the first round by the uh, Knicks. Um, and Unseld, as a rookie, also won the MVP in a fairly overwhelming vote, which was done by the players. Um, uh, it's funny because he never actually finished in the top eight in voting in uh, MVP. Um, that season, he averaged 13.8 points per game, 18.2 rebounds per game, which is fifth in the league, and then ninth in win shares per 48. Meanwhile, Monroe, a shooting guard, averaged uh, 24.2 points per game, which was second in the league, um, 4.2 assists per game, and he was 20th in win shares per 48. So, so you know, both up there in um, in that stat, you can definitely see um, you know their their case for that. Um, for that time. I, I feel like Unseld is another, for at least the MVP itself, um, the production isn't necessarily, makes that a little bit of an odd vote, but you know, you, you make a lot of points here, and we've made that before about how you know Unseld was definitely maybe a guy that um, production doesn't necessarily um, you know, p- paint the best picture for him. There's just, there's more to his game than uh, and that, and for a lot of guys, but I think Unseld in particular. Why you know he he he's such an it's it's such an odd case when he wins the uh, when he wins the MVP because he's you know he's not the best player in the league not by a long shot um you know by any you, you know he he was uh, well known for rebounding and he was fifth in the league in rebounding and you know he's well known for for all these things that are kind of intangible qualities um the you know long outlet passes and setting good screens and being a a solid teammate I mean really if you look to to like a modern comparison, that's kind of like uh, Joe Kim Noah two or three years ago winning the MVP. Like 
you know, we'll talk about him in a little bit, but, but it's just, he's, he's completely underwhelming in, in almost every way. So the, the first team, uh, you know, is, is a stretch, uh, you know, in 69, you still have, you still have Walt Chamberlain, you still have Willis Reed. Um, and for Unsell to make the first team, I think was, uh, was kind of a stretch. And, and you, you see that obviously when, when he's not in, in the top eight and MVP voting again in his career, uh, that, that maybe, you know, that, that unselfishness, people were kind of taken by the fact that they, they, you know, improved by 21 games and, and people loved, loved how he played. Uh, but that, but that really, you know, he, he probably doesn't deserve that shot. Yeah. But again, we're not taking away from him. So, um, sure. yeah, I, I was thinking, um, unsell, you can kind of compare to Nash's first MVP. Um, where, sure, you, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that, that obviously very different players, but there's a lot of that, just, you know, the, uh, being really enjoyable to watch and turning around the franchise and, um, you know, a- a- and doing things that led to them, you know, being successful. Um, even though again, the, you know, um, Nash's productivity wasn't necessarily the best either, but, um, you know, it was just, it was one of those things that, um, you, you, I guess you kind of just had to see it. So, um, yeah. Now the Earl Earl the Pearl really surprised me that this was his only first or second team selection. I, you know, I I knew he you know he kind of plays second fiddle once he gets to New York uh, after he's traded to the Knicks. Um, you know, alongside Walt Frazier, he's almost he's overshadowed by Frazier in New York. But really, I was surprised he hadn't he hadn't earned one you know in a, in a season or two before in Baltimore because he was so outstanding and and kind of flashy. And you know, we t- you talked about Steve Nash gets the you know, gets an MVP award because he's, you know, it's fan friendly and exciting. And I mean, Earl, the Pearl was all that, uh, in the, in the late sixties. So I, I was kind of surprised that this was, uh, Monroe's only, uh, only, only time on the first or second team. Yeah. I, you know, in, in Baltimore, you know, they were, uh, they made the 71 finals, but they were like a 42 win team or, you know, the, the, so the, the regular season success wasn't exactly there. I mean, they were definitely overshadowed by the next, the, uh, next year. Um, and then you know the 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 Bucks as well were you know kind of the up and coming team on the rise, so they didn't quite have that same you know um, um, you know hoopla around them, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean it, it, it's interesting that um, yeah, I mean because both these guys are obviously like top fifty, they're on the top fifty list of all time. Unsold was a five time All Star. Monroe was a four time All Star. Um, they had a lot of success and they had celebrated careers. It, it is really interesting that these are. You just so two accomplished, two such accomplished players, and yet, yeah, only the only the, the one time on the All uh, NBA First Team, so for each, so that's yeah, that that is a, a an odd thing. It, it's kind of a, a little bit hard to explain. Uh, you know, it, again, in, in a league where you know when they played, where um, you know the talent was spread out more, so you you think that in you know a, a thinner league they would have had a better opportunity to make that. And there's still plenty of talent in the NBA when they're playing. I mean, I'm not trying to say there isn't a lot still, but um, it's definitely a different environment than it would have been, you know, earlier in the sixties or, you know, in, in different times in the NBA. Sure. And I think that, um, you know, you brought up a point earlier is that there's no third team all league. So, uh, I, I really enjoy one of the, one of the, um, uh, things Curtis Harris did, uh, I think a year ago now or two years ago, where he did the lost all NBA third teams where he went through and, you know, he kind of handpicked the, uh, the players he thought earned third team nods, um, through the you know the mid late sixties to I think the mid seventies and and he thought Monroe was worthy of a third team uh, three times and unselled at least one other time so I mean with a third team 
they probably don't make this list. Uh, at least at least Monroe probably gets at least one third team nod. But but really, I think the, they're also struggling with the the air in which they played. So Unseld, like I said, is behind you know Willis Reed, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell early in his career, and then uh, you know Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar later. So I mean, the center position was stacked in the in the late '60s and and through the mid '70s, and then uh, Earl DePearl is behind. You know, Walt Frazier and Jerry West and Oscar Robertson. I mean, really, there was a, a lot of competition, especially at those spots. So I think, you know, at guard and center, trying to get on the first or second team in the late 60s and early 70s was probably, I mean, it was, it was a crowded field. So, um, I, you know, that that's it's understandable in some ways why they each only made one first team. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, I mean, it is understandable, but it's it's uh, surprising still. You know, sure, when, when you think about it, when you make the case, absolutely it makes sense. But it's still like you know, off the top here, it's like, oh wow, two two of the you know top fifty players of all time only had that level of accomplishment. Of, of course, um, Monroe didn't didn't end up making the over and back uh, top fifty, but uh, but Unseld uh, Unseld did so. Um, so next we go to the very next season, 1970. So three seasons in a row of this, uh, now back to the ABA and, um, Bob Verga, who, um, has a, he was in his third season. Um, he played six in all playing for the Carolina Cougars. Um, he averaged a 27.5 points per game, was second in the league in that, was 27th in the league in win shares per 48. So, you know, a, a, a probably not first team uh, all ABA level in, in that metric, but, you know, uh, but again, the scoring and, um, and the Carolina Cougars had, um, j- just moved, uh, the Houston franchise, I believe, yeah, from before. And, uh, and, and they were kind of a strong, you know, they, they had played pretty well that uh, season. So, uh, you know, obviously again, another thing with the kind of the surprising uh, team success and the, uh, actually they're only 42 and 40 years. They didn't have necessarily super team success, but, um, but you know, the scoring and, and everything, um, you know, makes that pretty understandable. He was only a one-time all-star in the same season, only played six seasons. So he wasn't really like a necessarily, this is definitely kind of a, you know, one year blip for him, kind of like it is for uh, Charlie Williams, as opposed to the, you know, the, the unsub Monroe of having great careers, but only happening to reach that plateau, you know, one time. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was definitely a, you know, a, a brief flame the, he, you know, he, he lasted really one season uh, as a, as a star. And I mean, you, you kind of see this, I guess uh, I, I equate this more to baseball. So I, I equate this as, you know, the player who averages 13 home runs a year and then busts out with 50 and then back to 13. He's just, he's a journeyman. He's a role player. He's he has Brady, one tremendous He's season. the Brady Anderson of the Exactly. Year. Yeah. Yep. And of course, that's the name that popped into my head too. So, I yes. mean, yeah, he's, Bob Berg is the Brady Anderson of the ABA. There you there go. There you go. Um, yeah, he had another guy well-traveled. Um, he had played already um, Dallas, Denver, um, New York, and Houston. Um and um, and then, of course, Houston had moved to Carolina, and they signed a bunch of players who uh, played college in that era. Um, Bob Riga played at Duke, and he has the Duke record for most points per game in a season. Um, and they even signed a local coach, Bones McKinney, who had led Wake Forest to Final Four in 62. And, um, like I said, he became a role player afterward and retired after the uh, 74 season. Yep. And... Um, Next, uh, 19, again, we stay in the ABA. In 1972, it is um, Bill Melchioni. I don't know exactly how to pronounce that, but do you know how to pronounce it? Oh, there you go. Yep. Nice. Got it. 
he I uh, I meant to check that before we did the show and I forgot. So <laughs> glad I had a nice guess. Um, he is uh, and he's not someone I really had heard of uh, honestly before I did research for this, but um, he. Um, Point guard for the Nets in his fifth season, played nine in his career. He began his career as a reserve on the uh, 1967 Sixers, one of the uh, the, the greatest teams of uh, of all time, single season teams of all time, along with Wilt um, and company. Um, then later was cut from that team and made his way to the ABA as a free agent in 1970, and then ended up being a, a really good um, player for the uh, Nets in the uh, 70s, and his number, in fact, number 25 was retired by the Nets. So, um, with a three-time All-Star as well, so a, um, you know, quite a good player. You know, I, I hadn't heard of him before I read, uh, Dr. J released an autobiography, I think this year, I think it was in 2015. Uh, yeah, um, or it might've been late 2014, but it's, it's, yeah, it is recent. Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but, um, it's on my that, list. That's the only way I, I knew him because he does, he mentions Melchioni and the fact that, you know, Melchioni was one of those players that was, there's a really good player, uh, on mediocre, you know, mediocre average teams. And then when, uh, when Irving came in, the Nets kind of, uh, you know, over, turned over their roster a little bit. And he went from, you know, starting and an on the all-star, you know, all-star player to kind of a, a role player coming off the bench, um, you know, providing some of that, you know, hustle and grit and toughness and, and step back from, you know, the 20 point per game score in, into a, into a role on a, on a championship team. So, I mean, it's kind of that story of, you know, great player or, you know, great player on a mediocre team and a mediocre player on a great team. Right. Yeah, and he kind of bridged the Rick Barry into Julius Irving led teams. Um, you know, uh, the the highlight for Barry was that year in in forty in seventy two uh, they were forty four win team, but then um, they upset the sixty eight win uh, Kentucky Colonels in the postseason, made the finals, ended up losing there, and then um, in uh, seventy four and uh, seventy six, uh, once Julius Irving came along, they won the ABA title both years. So. Um, you know, we're, we're quite a fantastic team. In 72, he averaged 21 points per game, which was 12th in the league, 8.4 assists per game, first in the league. He also led the league in assists in 71. And in uh, 72, he was 17th in win chairs per 48. So, um, you know, even though he, did, you know, like I said, not, not a mega star or anything, um, but I, I think a big enough of a star and accomplished enough of a guy where it's a little bit more than just, oh, he happened to be really great this one season. I mean, he was he was a very steady and good contributor to some um, to some very good teams for quite a while. So, uh, and not, I think part of that too is that he, uh, you know, he 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 didn't play in the NBA. He uh, he retired before the the merger right before the merger. And so he doesn't have that, that kind of carryover where he might've, he might've, you know, I don't know that he would have made any NBA team, any, any all-star teams or anything later, but, but he might've, he might've had a little bit of a run in the NBA, uh, especially, especially after the Nets traded Irving and there was no one left in, in New York or New Jersey. So, so yeah, he, he kind of gets, gets overshadowed by, by Rick Barry and then Julius Irving, and then he leaves before the merger. So, I mean, he, he flies under the radar, but he was, he was definitely more than just a, a one hit wonder or one season wonder. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so next is uh, the, the the next season, 1973, again in the ABA. Uh, Warren Jabali. Um, this was his uh, fifth season of seven in the league. Um, he was a played point guard and shooting guard for the Denver Rockets, who were close to changing their name to the Nuggets. They would do so in 1975. Uh, he was originally uh, Warren Armstrong, but he changed it to uh, Jabali, which means rock in in Swahili. 
Um, he was well known for his, um, for a lot of things. He was known for his uh, social activism. He was known for, um, being an incredibly tough player. Um, he was known, he had a reputation as a, um, one of the most feared defenders in all of basketball. And he also was nicknamed Batman because he could fly through the air. So, um, and he was kind of also a guy who, uh, sort of butted heads a little bit, um, uh, the sort of the, the racial climate of the uh, 60s and 70s made it um, um, hard for uh, you know African Americans who were um, you know who who were uh, strong proponents of equal rights and um, and he wrote uh, quite eloquently about you know just sort of the um, uh, the, the situation you know the, the situation that he that um, you know that he that he dealt with in during his career and sort of his feelings on um, you know um, having not lived around white people for most of his life and then going into basketball and then um, how to deal with that so it's really interesting thoughts on that really you know he, he's, he's since passed away but he's a really seems like a really complicated interesting guy and um, and was also a very good player. He was no, and he uh, there. You know, I mentioned um, Terry Pluto's book, Loose Balls, earlier, and and Jabali is uh, is dealt with quite a bit in there because he he kind of typifies the uh, you know one one aspect of the ABA, the the notion that the ABA is much more uh, of a street game, a playground game, a free a free flowing game, uh, and is uh, honestly in the mid seventies kind of more African American friendly than was the NBA. And he comes in, and he's almost like a like a Ron Artest light, you know, a, sh- a shorter Ron Artest, where he comes in and he's a, you know, he's a tough defender. People know not to screw with him because he's, you know, he's um, he he's he's kind of vicious. Uh, he he stomped on the head of an imposing player during one fight. No one wanted to mess with him after that. So, yeah. you know, he, he kind of comes and he he bounces around the league quite a bit. He plays for I think you know six different teams and. Um, uh, that's that's kind of it kind of becomes his mo so he's he he comes in he wears out his welcome through his social activism and he, he's outspoken and he's he's kind of hard-nosed and he's uh um you know he's a, he's a tough guy and then and then he moves on but he's uh you know he's undoubtedly a great basketball player he's you know he could score he can rebound he can he can uh, pass um he's an amazing defender so i mean i think he was he's he's you know kind of underrated if, if you look back at his at his career it was short uh, I was in the ABA, but he was really he could he could do a little bit of everything. Yeah, and he suffered a he suffered a pretty bad knee injury. Um, uh, I think around seven or yeah, I, I think it was before this, but the effects of that didn't you know took hold you know a, as he got older. Um, but uh, during this season, the seventy three season, he was uh, fourth in Winchester for forty eight. Uh, 17 points per game, six point six assists per game, five point two rebounds, and. Um, and a .561 true shooting percentage. Um, he is only one of 18 players uh, in NBA ABA history to uh, reach those uh, milestones. Um, so, pretty good season. Um, he had led the Oakland Hawks of the of the to the ABA title as a rookie in 1969. Then he had bounced around the league. He was also a teammate of uh, Rick Barry as well. Though Barry was injured uh, during that season, um, during most of the season, so didn't actually play in the finals to win that championship. Uh, and he was also the MVP of the uh, 73 uh, All Star Game as well. So, um, you know, despite like I said, despite having bouncing around and um, having some issues, he still you know and having those injuries, he still you know had incredible talent and uh, managed to uh, make a mark in a relatively short career. Sure. Uh, so next we have uh, we have Gail Goodrich, who was 1974 in the NBA, 
Uh, this is his ninth season out of 14. Uh, he was on the Lakers at the time. He had started with the Lakers, then went to the Suns, then went back to the Lakers. Um, he'd also been a big UCLA star. He'd led the John that, that team to the first two titles under uh, John Wooden. They would win eight in a row, I believe. Um, and, um, you know, he was a, um, you know, he, he was a, you know, really good companion to, um, to Jerry West, um, a very good shooting guard. And, um, you know, for, um, you know, for this season, he, um, he averaged, um, I forgot to mark it, mark it down here. Um, <laughs> hold on a second. Uh, for this season, he averaged 25.3 uh, points per game and uh, 5.2 assists per game. And, um, I, honestly, doesn't really stand out as like being a significantly better season than any of his and any of his other, um, you know, um, really good years. In fact, um, you know, the '72 season probably is his best uh, statistical season. Um, it was still, you know, a very good season, but it was definitely not like um, it, this is sort of an odd choice to pick for um, being his best season. Or it for, is, yeah. No, you're you're right. I mean, he's uh he's 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 definitely overshadowed um in the 70 on the 72 championship team though by Wilt and Jerry yeah, West. I, yeah, and in 74 right. Wilt's gone. Um Yeah, so I mean that's that 74. West, I'm not sure. He he didn't play a lot in 74, I don't think. I think he I think, I think West he, was in I think I think there. he was hurt that year. So yeah, I don't think he played that much. So that you know, they were uh um yeah, they were 47 and um they were 47 and 35 that year and West only played, um, 31, 31 games. 31 games. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so that's probably a good reason why they, um, yeah, I mean, they had Connie Hawkins as well, you know, toward the end of his career, but they didn't really have many of the productive players. So, and it was, I mean, it was still, it was the Lakers and, you know, they were two seasons removed from an all time great season. And now Goodrich is, is still putting up, you know, 25 points and not playing any defense at all. And, uh, um, I, I love some of the comments. I, I was going through some old, uh, basketball digest uh and and um you know old old art magazine articles and stuff and uh one one um uh, journalist said that goodrich was a, a great fast break shooter that has managed to last 14 years without playing at the other end of the floor maybe that's his secret <laughs> so he's, he's attributing his longevity to the fact he doesn't play any defense yes um and you know he's a he, he's he's left-handed he's got the nickname stumpy because he's sh- kind of short and has short legs but he he scores 25 a game so i mean to me you know i, I see kind of you know gail goodrich as that guy at the you know the guy that shows up at the ymca and you don't really think he's that good and then uh he doesn't look the part, and then he comes out and he scores all the points. He doesn't play any defense, so I think he's he's the on the the YMCA All Star team. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so yeah, he he had led the '72 Lakers in scoring as well. Um, the you know '33 uh, straight win uh, team. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, he, uh, yeah, I don't know if there's like a really necessarily a standout case in terms of whether there's another, you know, all NBA team that he could have made. But, um, you know, I mean, he was a five-time all-star. He was definitely, you know, an accomplished player and, you know, considered a, um, I, I guess, more of like a mid-level star of his day. You know, I mean, he, he was sort of the equivalent, I guess, of like the James Worthy to um, to Magic Johnson type level. You know, for, for, That's a good comparison. Yeah. So. And, well, I mean, if you look at the, the times that he didn't make, he you know, when he had similar seasons and didn't make the, uh, the first team, he – Kind of like uh, Earl Monroe is stuck behind Jerry West and Walt Frazier and 
Um, you know, he, he, you know, has Oscar Robertson in front of him. And so really with those, those three, you could pencil into the first and second team for, you know, five or six seasons. And so really you had Gail Goodrich and Earl Monroe and, and guys like Lou Hudson for the Hawks and, uh, um, Archie Clark, um, you know, uh, who was, I think with Baltimore by then, you know, they're, they're kind of vying for that last spot. And so to, to make the, uh, uh, to make the, the first or second team was, was, you know, really down to one spot that you have a, you know, a kind of a handful of guys fighting for. And it just so happened, I guess, in 74 that the Gail Goodrich had his name called and uh, it was his turn. Yeah. Well, you know, good for him. We're, we're definitely not going to take away from him, as we keep saying. So as I, That's right. I, I guess I keep saying it, but. Especially a man named Stumpy. Yes. No, we would never do that with Stumpy. Yeah. I mean, he had to, he had to live with that for his, uh, <laughs> for his life. So let's, 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 let's uh, let him keep his all-star uh, or his all-NBA uh, so next we have, um, we have Billy Knight of, uh, 1976 in the ABA, the, uh, small forward for the Indiana Pacers. This is the second season of 11 in, uh, both leagues. This is the final season for the, uh, ABA. Um, he's also the uh, future general manager of the, of my Atlanta Hawks, uh, put together the 2004, 2005, uh, Atlanta Hawks team that I like to uh, reference and also famously drafted Marvin Williams ahead of Chris Paul. So, we, uh, we we don't care much for Billy Knight in uh, <laughs> Atlanta Hawks uh, uh, fan circles. He, um, uh, he also gets confused with Billy King a lot, including on Billy on Billy Knight's Wikipedia page. So at least last yeah, time I, I checked, that. he was uh, he was confused uh, there. So that that's uh, that's always fun. Uh, he uh, he was a two time All Star. He had another strong season in seventy um, seven before you know kind of moving to the NBA and then sort of fell off. Uh, a bit sort of bounced around a bit and then sort of had a second run with Indiana where he kind of settled into a mid-level player in the uh, early eighties. But he was, um, uh, you know, he, he actually um, is on quite a few of the leaderboards in um, ABA history or, or excuse me, not in ABA history, but in Indiana Pacers history, um, you know, relatively like top five in points and, you know, a few of the other things, which is, which is kind of interesting, but in, uh, in 76, he averaged 28.1 points per game, 10.1 rebounds, uh, 3.7 assists. So, um, you know, uh, a pretty pretty well-rounded player. Um, uh, you know, had another strong season, like I said, in, in 77, um, making the All-Star team, and that was, you know, that that was about it. But you know, that was a that was a pretty good run. Well, I mean, if you if you look at when he broke into the league, he also suffered from some really bad timing. So. He comes into the ABA and he, he, you know, he plays second fiddle to Julius Irving, obviously in the ABA, and then um, he moves to the NBA. And if you look at the his, his he he had really one exceptional season in the NBA in 1977, like you said, when he made the All Star team. But if you look at the first team, the first team all uh, all NBA forwards in '77 were Elvin Hayes and David Thompson, and the next or the second team then were uh, George McGinnis and Julius Irving. Yeah. So I mean, really breaking into that foursome that that's that's tough. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he definitely would have been a, a third teamer if it had existed. Um, but I, one thing I love about Billy Knight, so I'm a Pacers fan, and this, uh, although I wasn't yet born, was really a dark time in Pacers history. So before they they had all these uh, these costs associated with the merger and had to pay them, and, and they were, you know, front office staffs check were bouncing, and so they actually held a telethon to try to raise some money. And uh, one of the cus- the cost cutting measures that they came up with was to you know sell their some of their best players. So they traded Billy Knight to Buffalo, uh, and then uh, in return they got Adrian Dantley, who lasted you know a third of a season or half a season, and they traded him to the Lakers for James Edwards. So they start with an all uh, all ABA team 
uh, Billy Knight and two trades later end up with James Edwards. So it was, it was a less than, you know, less than stellar time in Pacers history. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They really were. Um, I mean, those, those eighties years were, were pretty lean up until, you know, up until they got Reggie Miller. Um, yeah, they were. Yeah. Um, it's funny because of course the Pacers are, um, you know, maybe the best team of the seventies. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, they, they, they won it with three championships, I believe. And, um, you just had these great players. I mean, you know, you, you could match them up with any of the NBA, um, great teams of that era. And, you know, they, um, you know, they were right there. So, um, but yeah, that, that history, I guess it w- is separated by a lack of anything in the NBA up until Reggie Miller, that there's not much memory of, you know, there, 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 there's nothing linking those ABA teams to the NBA team. So I, I feel like that's kind of forgotten a little bit more than it would be otherwise. Um, uh, but yeah, I think I mean, Pacers fans want to forget the eighties. So it was, yeah. it was a dark time, um, you know, high draft picks that didn't pan out and yeah. trading away some, uh, Cartel gets hurt, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so yeah it, was, it was it was a forgettable forgettable time, you know, when they traded the pick that would become Sam Bowie. So, you know, they could have sat there and got Michael Jordan, but you know, uh, that's right. Yeah, bygones and bygones and all that. That, that was I, I read something recently on James Edwards on the Pacers, and I feel like he's related somehow to that. Like, I feel like. Um, I, I feel like the the GM for the um, Pacers made some sort of trade related to James Edwards. Like they, they hadn't made, or if James Edwards, I, I forget the, the particular circumstances of it now, but somehow James Edwards is involved in the um, in because like, they traded for uh, Tom Owens, I believe, to the Blazers. Um, so I, I forget the connection now. But um, anyway, you'll just have to take my word for it. I was going to say part of it is that. He uh, he signed away as a free agent, so all of a sudden the Pacers were were struggling for a for a center, and Tom Owens for the Blazers That's seemed like a great choice. Okay, yeah. So yeah, no, we'll we'll blame James Edwards. So we can blame Billy Knight via Adrian Dantley via James Edwards for the fact that the Pacers didn't get Michael Jordan. Yeah, well, that's a shame. Um, anything else uh, interesting about Billy Knight before we uh, move on to uh, our next uh, our next contestant? Not really. I mean, the only other thing about Billy Knight that I thought was interesting is that, like a lot of these players, it's you know he he's an exceptional scorer. He puts up such great scoring numbers, and people just d- destroy him for his defense. So they, um, one comparison that was made at the time was that he was kind of like Cassie Russell, who was uh, his name was kind of like if you mention uh, today James Harden in defense, people are like oh James Harden doesn't play defense. Well, that was Cassie Russell in the seventies. So ah. he compared to Cassie Russell was kind of a a wink and a nod that. Yeah, he can score, but you know you might as well just play four on five at the other end. So yeah, Billy Knight kind of fit into that category as a you know score first, score second, score third kind of a kind of player on some on some pretty like I said some pretty poor Pacer teams. Yeah, the thing about Billy Knight uh, as a GM is that he kept there was the thing where for the while the Hawks like they just wanted to be all small forwards. I mean they had they had Josh Smith, sure. they had Josh Childress, they had Marvin Williams, and they and they had. Uh, Joe Johnson, they would play them all together, and and it was uh, pointed out that all of those guys were basically the same height as Billy Knight. You know, like, Billy Knight kept winning draft players who reminded him of himself. So I don't know if that's that makes li- sense. Literally true, but that's you know that obviously would sort of what it seemed like. So and they wouldn't have come together on your Hawks team without that. So no, no, they 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 would not. So um. So next is uh, 1978, uh, and we're back into the NBA. The the, the mergers happened. Uh, Truck Robinson. Uh, it was his fourth season of 11 in the league. Is power playing power forward for the New Orleans Jazz. He led the league in minutes played, 3,638. 
Um, that is the 18 most, most minutes in a season in NBA, ABA history. Uh, eight of those are from Will Chamberlain, two were from John Havlicek, two were from um, Alvin Hayes. One was Tiny Archibald, one was Spencer Haywood, one was Artis Gilmore, and two of them were Gerald Govin of the uh, ABA, who I, I'm honestly not familiar with other than I'm having this um, incredible mark. So, Yeah, that's a new one to me. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, I mean, this is seems like it's a – I mean, he led the league in rebounds per game, 15.7, uh, one of the first non-centers to ever lead the league in uh, rebounding. Uh, he was first in defensive win shares, but not in the top 20 in any of the major advanced uh, metrics. So um, it, this is, a, I, I think, you know, more along the lines of just playing a lot of minutes and getting a lot of counting stats um, and, you know, not, not being a bad player, but probably not really, you know, the uh, this is definitely sort of a, um, you know, one hit wonder kind of thing, even though he, you know, he hit a long career, but for the most part was a, you know, pretty solid, you know, d- goodish player, but not, you know, any- anywhere near this level. No, he, I mean, he was pretty, he was pretty high profile at the time because he was part of a, the first crop of free agents. So in the summer of 77, we had the first, first time NBA players can switch teams as free agents. And so he signed with new Orleans and it was actually one of the one of the three or four biggest signings of the offseason. And so he was getting a lot of publicity, uh, publicity, and he was teaming with Pete Maravich. And um, so Maravich was playing guard and Robinson was playing inside. And there was, there was actually a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, intrigue about that, whether they could play together, how they would, how they would, you know, um, how they would play. Uh, Maravich kind of be Mr. Outside and, uh, and Robinson kind of be Mr. Inside. And so they, there was a lot of publicity, and I think that's part of it too, is that all the eyes were on him. And he comes out, and he, you know, he pulls down 15.7 rebounds per game. And uh, and New Orleans, New Orleans was a hot and popular team at the time, so I, I'm sure that had something to do with it, also. Yeah, and they were, uh, they weren't good, but they were much better than they had been. They were 39 and 43. Um, you know, they they um, uh, that was kind of a weird year because uh, that that was a season in which there were. Um, almost no like really good or really bad teams. Like everyone was kind of like stuck in the, in, in the middle. So, so they actually, um, they weren't necessarily that high in the standings, but that was, um, you know, a, a, a stronger year for them than, um, they had been, um, they had been having actually, yeah, I guess their record in the, uh, from 76, 78 actually wasn't, I always thought it was worse than it was, but it was, they were, they won 38, 35 and 39 wins. So it's not like they were quite the disaster sure. that, that I was thinking that they were, but either way, um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a massive success, but they, they did well enough. Um, yeah, I mean, he'd been stuck behind, you know, he started in Washington. He'd been stuck behind Wes Unseld and Elvin Hayes. Um, so this was kind of like, he, he played briefly, um, in Atlanta, but this was kind of his first opportunity to really um, shine as well after he, after Atlanta, um, where he played half a season and, and did pretty well, um, and then and um, then went to Phoenix and it, you know played pretty well there, and then aged and you know, had a, had a few years in three years in New York, but by then he was older and not reproductive. So, um, you had an interesting note about that free agency in '77 about the, almost a another a team, uh, almost a, almost another uh, almost a big three there in New Orleans. Yeah, so when I, when I you know when researching basketball, it's, it's always fun. We you know we talk about the big three of uh, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, uh, you know, as if they they were the first to come up with that idea. And so 
Um, they they clearly weren't. You know, we talked about Gail Goodrich along with you know kind of uh, Jerry West and Wilt Chamberlain earlier. But but in the summer of '77, there was actually talks that um, so Pete Maravich was already in Atlanta and Truck Robinson signed with Atlanta, and then uh, Detroit center Bob Lanier almost joined him. And you know his his quote at the time was that they would have created three crucial spokes in the wheel. So he you know kind of alludes to a big three, even without saying it specifically. Right. That that you know the kind of the combination of of Lanier and Robinson and, and Maravich would have hopefully elevated New Orleans. But but instead Lanier ends up um, you know signing and staying with Detroit, and uh, and you know Robinson and Maravich kind of you know achieve middling success in New Orleans. Right. Right. Yeah. And they would uh, you know. Maravich and Robinson would both be gone uh, after the uh, next season, and of course the Jazz would end up moving to Utah. So that was not uh, that was destined to uh, last very long. So um, yeah, it didn't work out. Yeah. Speaking of a great big three, uh, our next uh, choice we, we move forward nine years in time. So after all these cluster of uh, players in the uh, in the seventies, we move on a little bit to 1987 in the NBA. Uh, one of the big three in Boston, Kevin McHale. Um, this was his seventh season of 13. He, um, he was, uh, p- playing power forward for the uh, Celtics, of course, uh, obviously one of the, uh, gr- greats of all time and one of the most memorable teams ever. So it's kind of surprising that he never made another, um, uh, all NBA team, you know, even like a second team and, and early his career, he was coming off the bench. And, you know, of course there's you uh, part of the thing with, you know, being part of a big three is you're sharing the credit. I mean, Larry Bird is the star, but you're sharing a lot of credit with, um, Repair. So, you know, determining who is getting kind of the credit for, um, you know, as being the, um, you know, the, the, the second spoke in that wheel. Plus, you have Dennis Johnson. Early, early on, you have, um, you know, Tiny Archibald. Other, you know, um, good role players who were once stars or, you know, still kind of stars in there. So it's uh, as part of being a great team, you have a lot of great players. And distrib- distributing credit for that can be difficult. Sure. And I mean, you know, he, he played the first you know, what, nine seasons of his career without a third team, uh, all NBA being there. Yeah. So, you know, yes. it's, it's possible he earns one earlier and earlier in his career, but like you said, I think more importantly, he's coming off the bench, he's playing a role. Um, and really until Larry Bird starts to, uh, starts to, you know, kind of tail off, uh, in the late eighties, it's, it's definitely Larry Bird's team and, and Mikhail's second fiddle. And then, um, you know, uh, Mikhail has some foot injuries, some leg injuries, and uh, and ultimately kind of kind of falls off not too long after Bird does. So, you know, I think, you know, if he had played a few more seasons, he might have, you know, uh, would have, could have, should have made a, another team or two. Yeah, well, I mean, he was 35 at, at the end. But you're right. I mean, in yeah. 87, that means he, he sustains a, a major foot injury um, um, and is he's still very good, but never quite, you know, he, he doesn't quite reach that same level again. And um and probably is less effective than he would have been his last couple of years of his career, you know, had he not had that injury. Right. Um, but yeah, in 87, he had 26.1 points per game, 9.9 rebounds, 2.6 assists. Uh, he leads the league in field goal percentage at a point, um, point six zero four. Um, and the, uh, the, the Celtics make the finals, but lose to the, um, Lakers. They're the, the real with injuries that year and can't, quite uh keep them keep the um uh can't, can't quite keep the magic from the, the previous year uh that year he was the first player in nba history to shoot 60 percent or better from the field and 80 percent better from the free throw line in the same season um he was fourth in mvp voting that year behind uh, magic johnson michael jordan larry bird 
uh, was fourth in the league in Winters for 48. It was one of five times in which he was top seven in Winters for 48. So definitely um, was, you know, a um, a guy where, based on production, um, you would think that he would have definitely had another all-NBA team. But, yeah, as we talked about, you know, just um, there are reasons why it didn't quite happen. Right. Um. Yeah, the injury that he had, um, he famously bro- uh, played through a broken uh, navicular bone in his right foot, ignored doctor's advice, and played through the injury. And, um, you know, unfortunately, he limps when he walks uh, today. And so um, suffering the uh, you know, effects of, of doing that and trying to do best for his team. But, um, but unfortunately for him, not being able to quite account- go as far as, um, as he wanted to. Was that in the, was that in the eighty seven playoffs that he broke his bone? No, it was it was during the season. Um, oh, okay. And he tried uh, to come back. Uh, well, I mean, he played through it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, but I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't remember exactly when it occurred. Um, my 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 memory says that it happened um, uh, late in the season, but um, but I could be I I can't exactly remember. Yeah, I was gonna say I looked it up, and he he only missed five games that season. So yeah, he didn't miss didn't miss much time considering he had a broken navicular bone. Yes. Um. So next we move forward a little bit in time again, seven years to uh, nineteen ninety four, and uh, Latrell Spewell. Um, it was the second year in the league of thirteen seasons. Uh, Chris Weber was his his teammate's rookie season. Um, that did not go quite swimmingly. Um, he was, uh, played sh- shooting guard, played for, playing for the Golden State Warriors. Um, he, um, I, he didn't have a very good season and it was kind of a weird year because, you know, Michael Jordan just retired. So it definitely put a, um, you know, there was a hole in the shooting guard position. Um, obviously the other thing that had happened was, uh, you know, um, Reggie Lewis had passed away, you know, um, who was, who had been an all-star was not an all, had not been an all NBA player, but was definitely a candidate to, um, to, to be that as well. So I guess there were, um, you know, there were reasons why there were fewer competition for, um, for shooting guards that year, even though, I mean, there were still quite a few, um, you know, there were a lot of great point guards and some, also some very good shooting guards, um, during that time. Yeah, no, he. I mean, he he definitely was was worthy of, of making the list. Like you said, though, I think he's he's really aided by the fact that uh that Jordan's not there and and there's some other injuries. So yeah, his 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 ninety four season was uh was was good. Um, you know, uh, looking through his stats though, he was actually better a few years later. Uh, in ninety six ninety seven, um, he uh, finished with a PR of nineteen point seven point one one five win shares per forty eight. Uh, but if you look at the the uh, the guards who made it above Sprewell, uh, there were six guards, so first, second, and third team in the 96-97 season. And so Tim Hardaway and Michael Jordan were the first team. Gary Payton and Mitch Richmond were the second team. And Penny Hardaway and John Stockton made the third team. But looking a little deeper, uh, you know, Penny Hardaway making uh, making the team over Sprewell is is kind of questionable. Um, you know, Penny's a superstar, obviously, at that point. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal had left, you know, there was little penny or little penny. Um, but he only played, you know, so Hardaway only played in 59 games. And so, uh, Sprewell averaged more points, assists, rebounds, and steals than did, uh, than did Penny Hardaway. Although advanced stats like win shares per 48, like, uh, like 
Penny over Sprewell, you know, he he probably should have made that that team that year. Um, but you know, more importantly to to me, and I was like 14 or 15 during this season, was that this is also the year that NBA Jam Tournament Edition came out, <laughs> and so like that was my game in you know 1994, and I loved one of my favorite teams was the uh, the Warriors because they had um, they had Literal Sprewell. And so if you played through the game all the way, you could unlock uh, a few extra players. Like um, I think the, the unlockables on that team were Tim Hardaway and Chris Mullen. But uh, his, his, originally they, they team up in 1994, they team up uh, Latrell Sprewell with Ronnie Cycli and Tom Gugliotta. So his teammates left a little to be desired, but, but Sprewell is awesome in that game. So that's my you know, 15-year-old memory of Latrell Sprewell is uh, being able to kick people's butt with the, the Warriors. So that, to me, was the most important thing about Sprewell. Uh, and that, that that seems like a, you know, a valid thing to, uh, to to be the most important thing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So in '94, uh, twenty one point uh, twenty one points uh, per game, four point seven assists, um, four point nine rebounds, two point two assists, and um, he um, uh, led the league in minutes played. Uh, also was a, a second team All Defensive Player, although. As you pointed out, the uh, the Warriors were twenty um, third in points allowed uh, that season, so um, not the best defense. But you know, um, but, but yeah, I mean, he was a um, his his reputation is a little bit weird because um, he was very good, but you know, he wasn't after the um, after the the joking incident in nineteen ninety eight with. Um, Peter Carlissimo, his coach, uh, you know, he, he wasn't going to be making any um, all NBA teams uh, anymore. Though he was, he was an all star with the Knicks uh, in two thousand one. So, um, you know, it, it's um, and and he was sort of like a guy who was more of. I mean, at, at his peak, he was really good, but he, he didn't quite last it like that. Because I, I think he was more of like a borderline all star player for most of his career, rather than like an all a definite all NBA uh, selection. Although uh, you, your case for him in 97, I do think is pretty strong. Yeah. He, you know, he definitely fits on that, that edge of fringe all-star good player on a, on a good team. Um, you know, he, like we've talked about a couple other players on, on, on poor teams, he could light it up and really, really put up a bunch of stats, but on a, on a great team, he wasn't going to be a, you know, a top one or two or probably even third, uh, third player. Uh, he, he was good, but not great. And, and in 94, he, he had a great season, but also kind of everything fell into place. Yeah. Uh, now he did. Yeah. I mean, he did have some good years later with the Knicks and with the Timberwolves. He led them to some pretty good, led them to some pretty good years and, uh, you know, a finals appearance for the Knicks conference finals appearance for the, uh, for the Timberwolves. So, uh, you know, he was part of some, of some winning teams later, but, um, but yeah, the, the, the stats were, uh, the production was not quite as uh, strong there, understandably. Um, even though, you know, probably we, when you consider everything, the veterans savvy and all that, he probably was a better player by then. Um, sure. so the, uh, we'll kind of group the last three together since they are, um, since they're very recent, um, 2011, uh, Derek Rose, it, also his MVP season. He, he has selected to all NBA first team, uh, 2014, Joachim Noah, um, it is uh it makes that selection and then 2015 anthony davis so i think we can say that for anthony davis he is very likely to get another all nba selection um in in this year's third season he 
had 24.4 points per game, 10.2 rebounds per game, 1.5 steals, 2.9 blocks per game at age 21. Um, he was first in PER in the league. It's the 11th best PER season ever. Uh, second in the in the league in win chase for 48. Sixth in box score plus minus. Uh, he's having uh, this year uh, in 2016 is not quite as good, although he's uh, production wise is is rather close. His team is not performing very well, but I think there's. Uh, if not this year, he's very, very soon going to have another at least second or third team All NBA. It's uh, almost impossible for me to believe that that won't happen. Probably will happen this year. But for Rose and Noah, um, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I think I think uh, either would have a you, you'd have a hard time convincing me that either is going to make another first, second, or third team, or probably even an All Star game uh, appearance uh, again in their careers. Noah, I can't believe the the cliff he seemed to have dropped off of. So. Like kind of you know again I, I mentioned earlier that he reminded his game reminded me a little of Wes Onsell not a lot of scoring a lot of rebounding good passing kind of a smart crafty uh, crafty center and and maybe it's it's appropriate then that he only makes one first team just like Wes there you go yeah um, he's a two time All Star uh, that that season his seventh was. 12.6 points per game, 11.3 rebounds, 5.4 assists per game, which is actually the seventh most assists per game for a center ever, which uh, uh, surprised me a little bit. Um, he was uh, fourth in MVP voting that year. Basically what happened was the Bulls um, had traded Luel Dang after um, you know, Derek Rose was lost for the season. Um, and so no one thought the Bulls were going to be any good. Then they ended up uh, making a good run and even made a, the upset the Nets in the uh, playoffs uh, that year. He was also the defensive player of the year. And he was definitely like, you know, so the, the heart and soul of that team, the, they ran the offense through him. He played very hard. Um, but, um, you know, I think the falling off a cliff, he played through a lot of injuries and played a lot of minutes and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's around 30 now. So, uh, just sort of an age where, you know, um, uh, where players start to decline. Unfortunately, he's declined uh, further than, you know, more than most. I think the, the lack of shooting hurts him more than it even did, you know, three or four years ago. Um, and, and so it's kind of an unfortunate fall. And obviously for Derek Rose, it's really just, you know, he suffered a ACL tear the season after this during the playoffs and has been unable to uh, return to form. Uh, despite, like he said, he was – he was awesome that year, 25 points per game, 7.7 assists per game. Even though the choice was to make him MVP was derided a little bit. I mean, he was fourth in win shares for the season and fourth in block score plus minus. I mean, he was definitely in that club when you look at the the total case, the team success, you know, um, everything. And I honestly, I think he's probably going to become the first MVP. Uh, Rich has written about this. Uh, probably going to become the first MVP not to make the Hall of Fame, which is, you know, kind of crazy to think about. No, it makes sense. And I mean, you you can hindsight 2020, go back and, and make him not MVP in 2011, but, but his case was solid. And there, I mean, there was a little apathy over voting for LeBron again, but I, you know, his, his he that season stands up fine. And I think that, uh, um, that, that unfortunately, as with Noah, you know, injuries and, and a lot of playing time, uh, thanks to coach Thibodeau, um, you know, is, is ultimately going to, going to hamper him going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so that's it. So, um, uh, so Adam, you want to let everyone know, um, where they can follow you on Twitter or anything else you want to let people know? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Adam Cribley, A-D-A-M-C-R-I-B-L-E-Z. Cool. And, uh, of course you can, uh, follow us on Twitter at over and back NBA. We're also on Facebook at the uh, same name. 
Uh, you can find our podcast at hardwoodparoxysm.com uh, and um, check out um, check us out on iTunes if you uh, want to leave us a, a rating and review. We are part of the HP Podcast Network. You can find either all the shows on the network at the HP Network feed or you can just find us at our own feed over and back NBA. So rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Um, and uh, that's about it. Uh, until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks again, Adam, for uh, being on the show. And we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.